It is time for the weekend update. That's right. All of the top stories that we brought to you earlier in the week located in one convenient location. Enjoy the show. We'll see you next time. Chad Daybell, is he ever going to get to trial? Well, least not in January, that's for sure. And like Judge Boyce likes to do there in Idaho, he's going to set a conference date, a status conference date to set a date. We'll see when that actually takes place. However, I think his order that he put out, there's a couple of things that are worth noting in there, particularly the jab to uh, Mr. Pryor as to basically saying, what the heck have you been doing for the last two years? So let's go ahead and take a look. Now, the court uh, like all good courts, likes to give a procedural background, right? It's the writing style that lawyers do. It's called IRAC. And then you put facts in there, right? Facts, issue, what's the rule, what's the law, then the analysis, and then the conclusion, I-R-A-C, IRAC. Pretty simple. So the court says in the facts section, hey, the court minutes reflect that back on December 2nd of 2021, the court held a scheduling conference in this case wherein counsel for Mr. Daybell argued for Mr. Daybell's trial to begin in October of 2022. The state of Idaho requested trial to commence in late summer of fall of 2023. Ultimately, after coordinating with the Ada County courts where the trial would be held, the court was set for January 9th of 2023 and issues ordered. And then the court goes on to know that on September 27th of 2022, Mr. Daybell filed a motion to continue the trial, um, arguing that a substantial amount of trial investigation and preparation and significant amount of discovery was still outstanding. On October 6th, the state filed a response to the motion, essentially as a non-objection to the continuance, and requested that the court uh, stay this case pending a determination as it relates to the co-defendant, Lori Vallow. And then on October 13th, the court heard the parties on the motion in a hearing and took the matter under advisement. And then the court issues the following orders. So that's the facts. The issue is, should the, should the case be continued? Then the court goes through the law. The decision to grant or deny a motion to continue rests within the sound discretion of the trial court. And basically uh, cites some cases as it relates to alleged tardiness of the disclosure uh, could prejudice the defendant in a particular case. And basically to show that there, if there is prejudice, the defense has the burden of showing that there's prejudice at this point. Uh, really doesn't go on. And his analysis says the court reiterates that it has denied the state's request to enter a stay in this case. So this case is going forward regardless of what happens with Lori Vallow. And they go on and said, let's address the motion to continue in the trial. And notes that during the hearing on October 13th, counsel for Chad Daybell again emphasized that he could and would be ready to proceed on January 9th. However, then he also represented that a significant amount of discovery will still be outstanding and made the request to continue to trial in order to abate any possible prejudice to the state. The motion argues the defendant is entitled to adequate amount of time to prepare for the capital trial, and the court agrees with that, all being said. And then it said, all parties have been aware that this is a capital case since August of 2021, when the government filed their notice of intent to seek the death penalty. I mean, that's a long time ago, ladies and gentlemen. 
here we are October 31st of 2022. So they've known literally for what 14 months now. So in considering that this is a capital case, the court had every juncture between mindful of uh, protecting all aspects of ensuring a fair proceeding to the parties involved. The court also took into consideration the setting of a trial date in January of 2023 um, and that the representations of counsel, the defense would be ready for trial back in October of 2022 and now objected to the trial beginning set in 2023. So the basis argued in the motion to continue reveals the unfortunate current posture of this case where only now, too late, counsel fully realizes the complexity of preparing a defense in this particular case. Oh, gee, I wonder who's mentioned that in the past. Oh, maybe this guy? It's a death penalty case, and it's been one attorney. It would be a full-time job for a team of attorneys, and yet he thought that he was going to be able to do this on his own. Come on. The court is calling out uh, Mr. Pryor on this like we've been calling him out for a while now. Now, the motion to continue cites, among its many reasons, to delay the trial, the constitutional rights for effective assistance to counsel and the, the required individualized sentencing proceeding associated with a capital case, the need for expert witnesses and development of a mitigation evidence, and the purely speculative argument that some other attorney may at some point join the team and that a new attorney would need additional time to prepare. Now, while the court is left questioning how and why such issues, all present at the outset of this case, are only now being asserted as a basis for continuance, um, the arguments as a whole leave the court with abiding sense that the defense has indeed demonstrated that it is not and cannot be ready for trial in January of 2023. The ongoing insistence at the time that the defendant is ready to proceed to trial, including the representations made on October 13th, are contradicted by the assertions in the motion, which leave this court to determine that the trial in January 2023 would in all likelihood result in the defense counsel's inability to be adequately prepared, thus infringing on the defendant's rights. Therefore, they're going to uh, vacate it, and the court takes another jab because like I said, this has been going on and he just now realizes, oh, I need to do all this mitigation work. Are you kidding me? The court takes another jab and says, the court expects counsel for the parties to have a full and complete understanding of what preparation remains in rescheduling the trial so as to avoid any further unnecessary delays in the administration of this case. I think if we read between the lines of the court's orders, the court, the Judge Boyce is not happy with Mr. Pryor. First, you say you're ready to go. Then you say, no, I'm not. What is it? Oh, by the way, I haven't done anything on mitigation and the death penalty. And I may bring an attorney on, but he may need some more time to prepare. Really? Why has this not been taking place? I don't get it. I don't understand it. I've said this before. You can go back and look at my previous videos. Now is the time for Mr. Pryor to ask to get off this case if he is not capable of doing it and if there are not resources available to effectively represent somebody on a death penalty case. Normally you have at least two trial attorneys, an appellate attorney, and a mitigation expert. The everyday Joe cannot afford a death penalty case out of pocket unless they are uber wealthy and money is no object. Somehow I don't think that's the case. I somehow don't think that the house 
that Mr. Pryor took as payment from Chad Daybell is even going to come close to covering his time, let alone all the experts that may be required to challenge evidence in this case. We're talking cell phone experts. We're talking DNA experts, crime scene reconstructionists, mitigation experts, which include psychologists, psychiatrists. There's simply no way that it's going to happen. So, Mr. Pryor, this is your opportunity. If you need to withdraw, now is the time to do it. Otherwise, you're going to be on the hook to go try this case without the necessary resources. And then more than likely, this case is going to come back on ineffective assistance of counsel. What can you do? All right. The prosecution has stated that the CAST system final report is done and it's available for discovery uh, by the defense in the Lori Vallow Chad Day Bell matters. Well, what is the CAST report? What could they possibly be referring to? Well, that is the FBI um, cellular analysis survey team. Now, what is all that? Now, as you may recall, there's going to be a lot of cell phone data and tracking that the prosecution is going to try to get into evidence. All right. And the FBI cellular analysis uh, survey team is promoting a new methodology that um, they claim is greatly going to improve the precision of the historical cell phone sector analysis. You know, so you have three towers and they do a little triangulation and try to determine where the cell phone is. Well, like I said, the FBI, they're trying to say we can do better. Well, let's talk about it a little more. All right. Now, the FBI cast says it can dramatically enhance location accuracy using the historical cell site sector information plus timing information inherent in a cellular network. And because historical GPS or other precise location data is not typically collected and stored on a cell phone or by the network, the reliability and accuracy of the FBI cast enhances cell site analysis based on cell sector plus timing and power information is unknown. So to be clear, the FBI cast enhanced cell site analysis is not a location information that is calculated in real time from a burst of GPS data sent by the cell phone or a hybrid of available GPS data and network collected from three or more cell phone towers. CAST relies on historical signal data that a network measures and calculates for purposes other than providing its customers with precise location information. Traditional historical cell sector analysis is not precise. It provides a cell site sector as the location for the target phone. Now, accuracy is limited to the radius of the serving sector, which is typically measured in miles. CAST says it can increase location precision with a timing band, primarily based on the time it takes a signal to travel from a cell tower to a cell phone and back. A typical timing band involves one cellular tower. The cellular industry, however, considers the accuracy of time banding to be poor and highly variable on different environments. The FBI cast teams claims that it can provide a pinpoint location uh, based on the RTT data. 
Now, the cellular industry considers the accuracy of RTT location data to be low, primarily because the signal travels multiple paths. Even when CAST lacks network timing information, it maintains that it can accurately create a cell phone footprint. So what does this really mean? Well, there's been challenges to this new technology put forward by the FBI and their CAST team. And there's been challenges under FRI, which is the standard in which uh, new scientific evidence should be limited to coming into court because it's not reliable. And there's been a couple of cases. And in one case, the circuit court rejected as unscientific the FBI's attempt to map the historical signal footprint of voice calls within a sector primarily based on a survey of signal measurements collected during a drive test 10 months after the fact. Big win for the defense. So this CAST report, like I said, the cell phone data is going to be so critical in this case. We've talked about trying to get that information in. Once you get it in, you have to have basically an expert explain what it means. Well, somebody on the defense is probably going to have to file some motions saying this is unreliable. This is not an exact science and that the prosecution should not be allowed to opine as to the accuracy of when these calls took place and their specifically their location. So we'll see how this plays out. We'll talk about Mr. Pryor, who's counsel for Chad Daybell. He apparently may not have looked into any of this. Obviously, the final report is uh, being released, but you're going to need an expert to look at it. You're going to need an expert to testify that it's unreliable junk science. And if they don't challenge it, guess what? The prosecution is probably going to get it in. And if the defense hasn't challenged it, guess what? It's ineffective assistance of counsel on any post-conviction relief matters. This is why I personally think Mr. Pryor needs to jump ship at this point let court-appointed counsel get on there so that the resources can be available so that everybody is not doing this trial again in five years. Hell, we may do be doing the first trial in five years at the pace that things are going. Did Richard Allen's wife turn him in? That's right. Richard Allen is the man accused in the Delphi homicides. Well, he was arrested last week for the 2017 double slaying of the teens uh, Liberty, Liberty, Germany, and Abigail Abby Williams. And they worked and lived in the same community as Mr. Allen. Now, Allen has been charged with two counts of murder for uh, their killing. And the police say this is a major break in the mysterious Hoffensides that have uh, basically baffled investigators for nearly six years. Now, the suspect has absolutely no criminal history and worked as a pharmacy technician at the local CVS in town, which is Delphi, and they have 3,000 people in the town. You think somebody would have recognized something, right? We'll talk about that in a second. But as I noted, this guy has no criminal history. He has almost nothing when somebody runs a background check on this guy. He is so plain boring, it's unbelievable. I mean, what do we know about the guy? He's never been arrested. Um, he has a modest home worth roughly $140,000. He drives two Ford Focuses built back in 2010 and 2011. Like I said, his house 
built in 1999, three bedroom, two bath, a rough value of $142,000. This guy's just an everyday Joe, and now he's accused regarding the Delphi murder. Now, as we've noted, the girl's disappearance on February 13th after a hike on the Monon High Bridge Trail. They were reported missing that night and their bodies were found uh, in the woods the next day in a wooded area about a half mile from the railroaded bridge. Now, investigators searched Allen's home two weeks ago, focusing on the property, and apparently there's a fire pit on the property. Now, the search yielded some evidence that led to his arrest, okay? The police just didn't randomly decide to go over to Mr. Allen's house. There had to be something that led them to him. After nearly six years, what could it have been? Now, there's been some... I don't want to use the word speculation, but some people have suggested that perhaps the wife was the one that found something, called the police. The police got an affidavit for a search warrant. They found more information. And then, well, here we are. So Mr. Allen appeared before the Carroll County Circuit Court, entered a plea of not guilty, and a tentative trial date has been set for early next year and Mr. Allen is being held without bond, and the sealed probable cause affidavit and charging documents also have not been released in this particular case. Now, I know the police want to protect the integrity of the investigation, but it makes you wonder a couple of questions. Why? Are they not confident? Are they not sure what they're looking for is gonna come back as to what they're looking for? Or is there somebody else involved? I don't know. I'm leaning towards somebody found something out, contacted the police, and then here we are. Let me know what you think or if you have a tip or an idea of what may take place. So police conducted an all-day search of the Delphi double murder suspect's property around 10 days before his arrest. Now the uh, detectives searched the home, which he shares with his wife, Kathy and uh, their property for about 12 hours. They were definitely apparently snooping around a lot by the fire pit in the backyard, according to neighbors who saw the cops smell snooping around. Said there, the neighbor said there were lots of flashlights, lots of pictures, lots of sifting. Well, Mr. Allen was arrested last week for the notorious Delphi homicide case in which two Indiana teen girls were killed while hiking near their hometown five years ago. Now, police believe Allen took the lives of Liberty Libby German and Abigail Williams on a hiking trail the day before Valentine's Day back in 2017. Now, Abby and Libby took the hiking trip at the abandoned Monin High Bridge in Delphi, Indiana on February 13th of 2017 in an outing that was meant to be for a few hours. The girls took photos while strolling across the bridge, but as time passed and their families didn't hear from them, the police were ultimately called in for assistance. Well, unfortunately, the police found the deceased girls and their lifeless bodies a short distance from the bridge the following day near a trail close to the bridge. Obviously, they had both been murdered. The incident was nicknamed the Snapchat murders after one of the girls took a photo of the other at around 2.17 p.m. and they put it on social media. Detectives said that after the photo was taken, a man approached the girls and apparently told them to go down the hill. One of the girls, likely sensing danger, recorded the man's voice on her cell phone. She also took a photo and recorded a small clip of the suspect. 
Although his face isn't clear in the picture, it was enough to give authorities a general description. Now, since then, they've been pouring through thousands of tips and ultimately has now led to the arrest of Mr. Allen. Now, there were lots of other suspects where the police thought they were on the right track, but turned out maybe not. So really the question is, what's different about Mr. Allen's arrest than the previous people that were suspected of it? Obviously no arrests were ever made, but it makes you wonder what evidence they have at this point. Well, neighbors said that they knew something was going on when they saw the police searching the property of Mr. Allen, but in no way did they ever suspect it would be connected to the gruesome killings that obviously shook this small town. Now, Allen's arrest for the murder was the farthest thing from anyone's brain. Uh, everyone was really shocked, according to the neighbors, and the neighbors couldn't understand why the fire pit was being examined at the time, saying that they never see them burn anything over there. Allen and his wife, who has not been seen at the property since her husband's arrest, uh, were described as very quiet people and they kept to themselves. And the neighbor said, I don't think anyone was really close friends with him, referring to Mr. Allen. The affidavit for the arrest warrant against Mr. Allen has been temporarily sealed to avoid jeopardizing the integrity of the investigation. Now that always makes me a little suspicious when the affidavit, which is normally released upon the arrest of the defendant, isn't made public and available. Every time we've seen that, it really makes you wonder, is their case really as strong as the prosecution says it is? Now, other neighbors have also said, quote, I swear to you, he seemed like a great person. I don't think you'll find anyone who will say a mean thing about him, end quote. Of course, now, unless, of course, people believe he is the actual killer, well, they'll say he's a horrible human being. But isn't it interesting how nobody in this small town said that photo of the guy on the bridge or that description was this Mr. Allen guy? Very interesting to me. Now, another neighbor said uh, she wouldn't have guessed, adding, he helped me several times at CVS where he worked as a pharmacy tech, and um, he was just a very nice guy. So Mr. Allen is going to appear again in court on November 22nd to determine whether probable cause exists. That is a hearing called a preliminary hearing. And we'll see at that time whether the affidavit for the arrest warrant will be unsealed. All right, next on the docket, Lori Vallow and Chad DeBell. Some DNA testing is being turned over as it relates to specific items of testing. This goes back to the whole issue as it relates to uh, Chad DeBell. You need to have expert witnesses. What's interesting about this disclosure was it was a private laboratory conducting DNA samples of items that were already collected and apparently tested by the Idaho Crime Lab. Very, very interesting indeed. And then November 9th, which is uh, next Wednesday, there is a telephonic status conference as it relates to Lori Vallow's competency. It's not being conducted in person. And as far as we know, she is at the state mental health hospital. So my guess is, and it's a guess, so take it for what it's worth. I don't think that she'll be joining us anytime soon. Hopefully I am wrong. We want her to be restored, get well, etc., so that we can then prosecute her, correct? Well, we'll have to wait and see. Like I said, these mental health professionals that work at the state health department, they've seen malingering, they can identify it. 
So if that's the case, then they will obviously ferret that out. We'll keep you updated. <laughs>